youth group, I apologize, but I'm going to be leading you tonight, so you're stuck with Pastor Jason tonight, but uh, we are having youth groups, so uh, we'll see you here. All right, let's get into the message this morning, which is titled, and you see it on the screen in beautiful, bright yellow colors, How We Are to Love God. That's an easy answer, right? Well, (laughs) we'll see. Whenever we study the Word of God, we ought to be considering all of those things that we talk about from time to time. And what do we talk about when we talk about Bible studying? We want to find out what did the passage mean to the original audience. That's a, a big question to try to figure out. Then how does it fit in with the chapter and the book it's in? How does it fit in with the overall Bible and the story of redemption? What does it mean to us today? And finally, we say, well, we try to find an application. The application is either something uh, like, what, is, what sin in my life is this passage exposing, and how am I going to deal with that? Or it could be, uh, what command am I receiving here from Scripture? Uh, what, and what does this passage tell me about something I should be doing? These are all questions we try to answer as we study Scripture together. So these questions we should be seeking to answer whenever we read and contemplating any portion of Scripture, but all too often we tend to focus on the trivial, don't we? You know, how many syllables were in the original Hebrew or Greek? Or even worse, how does this passage make you feel? Your feelings are not unimportant, but when it comes to figuring out what a Bible passage is all about, your feelings have to take a back seat. The important thing is not what you are feeling about it, but about what God is saying through that scripture. So we come to today's passage, and you may have been reading ahead, but at least one of us here had to spend a bit of time researching this passage this week, studying it to learn its meaning, see what God is saying. Sometimes the preparation of a sermon is a dangerous thing. And this is because the preacher, in spending a lot of time, as my preaching professor said, marinating in the text, it can be a very uncomfortable feeling. The text being preached is not only to impact the congregation, the preacher himself must take stock of the passage and test his own life by it. And often this results in the preacher sitting there on a Saturday night thinking he's eminently unqualified to preach this text because he himself is not perfectly obeyed this scripture. And so it is this morning that as I stand here, and I've felt that feeling many times, I'm not perfectly holy. I'm not perfect in my speech. I'm not perfect in my thoughts. I'm not perfect in my actions. I've felt that feeling many times preparing to preach. It's nothing new. But this time is different. I chose to focus on one single verse today, and as I looked at it over and over again, studying the words in context, trying to understand what it meant to the original audience, doing my best to make an application of it that we could be challenged by, I realized that this command of God, the one Jesus said was the greatest command, is one that I am fearfully shortcoming in keeping. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If you were to really carefully read it five times and think introspectively about how you are doing keeping this command, 
If you are sincere in your desire to obey God and take seriously the working out of your faith, I think then, like me, you will realize that in the keeping of this command, not one of us could say, on a scale of 10, 1 to 10, I'm a 10. In fact, I doubt any of us would dare to rate ourselves anywhere near the 10, if we're honest. So let's take a look at this command. First, we will consider the context, what it means to those who first received it, and what it means for us today, and how we can begin even now to strive to do better in obeying this command. Let's read it together. It'll be on the screen. And this is the, the passage that we're going to be uh, focusing on throughout uh, the coming weeks and the, really the basis, as we said, of our D6 program that we're going to begin using soon. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates." getting some bids to have some posters made of this that we're going to hang in the front entries of each building to constantly remind us what our purpose is. What we as a church have chosen as our primary focus, and that is to obey this passage. But let us remind ourselves where in Scripture this passage falls. It falls within a speech given by Moses to the people of Israel. He has reminded them of how God delivered them. He has reminded them of their own falling short and their recommitment to follow God. And shortly before this portion, he has recalled the Ten Commandments. And immediately following this passage, he will go more into the rules that Israel was to live by. And in between all of this comes this command. The command that Jesus said was the greatest command. All the law and the prophets are summed up in this command. All the Ten Commandments are summed up in this command. All the other rules and statutes the people of Israel were to obey, including the very specific instructions they were to use to worship God, all of them are summed up in this command. Last week, I shared a quote from St. Augustine. He said, love God, then do as you please. And basically, he was saying that if you love God, that what you please to do will be the will of God. But really, St. Augustine was not saying any more than Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. And we see this, chapter 22, starting at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that that he had silenced the Sadducees, They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, then do as you please. Peter Marshall, who is the subject of the book and movie, A Man Called Peter, and he was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate, I believe in the 40s, um, he was known for his beautiful prayers. That in those days, his prayers that he gave to open the session of Congress were so good that the Associated Press put them in every newspaper all over the country. How far we've come, huh? And his prayers would speak of, of what he wanted to encourage Congress to do or the Senate to do, to, to live morally. But, but anyway, Peter Marshall, he spoke of that how as we mature in faith, our will and God's will become one and the same. Love God, then do as you please, means that the closer we get to perfection in loving God, the more his will and our will are joined together. The question may be asked by fragile humans, though, how can one command love? Isn't love a natural affection towards someone or something? Can God really command our love to him? And the answer is yes. He can, and he did. I can imagine a young single guy thinking to himself right now, well, that's it then, the pretty girl I like. I'll just command her to love me. Since the pastor says love can be commanded, finally, this will be how I get her to love me. I'll just command it. Well, hold your horses. You see, this is not going to work for you in dating, young man. You cannot command a girl to love you because you haven't done anything really significant for her. You have no authority over her. You have no foundation to stand on which would give you any kind of right to demand her love. But God does have authority over his people. He has done something significant for us. He has a foundation to stand on. In fact, Scripture tells us righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. So God has authority because he's the creator and we're the creatures. He has ownership over every one of us. He has ownership over those who try to please him, and he has ownership over those who hate him. And when the command was first given to Israel, beyond just the fact that he's the creator and truly the only entity that has a completely free will, God had shown them his power and shown them his special concern for them, shown them his preference of them, shown them his sovereignty over men and nature, and God was perfectly able to command love from them. If this is the greatest commandment, then it strikes me that those who are eternally damned will probably be people with a special resistance to this command. They do not love God, they hate him. And since they hate him, they hate his rules, his commands, they hate it. Those who love him want to honor him and want to keep his commandments. Those who hate him want to dishonor him and therefore rebel against his rule and reign. 
the more I learn to know God and his word, the more I understand what this word is saying, the more the world around me makes sense. When Christians are attacked for saying abortion is wrong, the hate towards the church really is hate toward the God the church represents. When Christians are attacked for saying marriage is a sacred union between a man and his wife, and therefore there is no other valid expression of it, the hate towards the church is really hate towards the God who set the family structure within his design for society. When Christians are attacked because they don't want drag queens in the schools or kids being told they can choose their gender, the hate is not really toward the Christians, though they may feel the wrath of the God-haters. Those who hate God's way of doing things really hate God himself. And as his representatives on this earth, we may as well get used to the idea that if we are to stand for the ways of God, we will receive part of the anger that God-haters have. Is this language too strong? How can I say they hate God? Is it evident to you as it is to me? On Mother's Day, I gave a message about God's church being pro-life, and I mentioned that abortion is part of satanic worship. Well, in case you didn't believe me, there are now members of the Church of Satan suing the states that have outlawed abortion, saying that they have a right to abortion as a religious exercise of their freedoms. Who hates God more than Satan? And who therefore does all he can to pervert God's way and to spread the hate of God's commands far and wide? I'm not sure how we can put evil on a scale, but since Scripture says that in the last days, sin and wretchedness and hatred towards God God will be like in the days of Noah, I think our world today, if it isn't there yet, is hurtling towards that level of depravity faster than ever, at least in recent history. But God will finally deal with those who hate him. Deuteronomy 32, 41, If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. And to, to talking about the hate for the light, Jesus said, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Who is the light, according to John? Jesus. So when he says hates the light, they hate Jesus. They hate because their works should, would be exposed. And then Jesus says that uh, we will be hated because he was hated. John fifteen eighteen. if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then John, a few verses later, verse 24, it says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. In Proverbs 8, 36, it says, But he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. Wow, that sounds like people who love abortion. All who hate me love death. Let's get back to the context of our main verse this morning, though. Remember, that is Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And in the context of this command to love is the giving of the Ten Commandments and the other rules and laws Israel was to live by. And as I mentioned last week, Christians today are not obligated to keep all of those ceremonial laws, but the moral law of God is eternal. Every person, Jew, Gentile, 
believer in Christ and unbeliever, lovers of God and haters of God, every person will be judged in how they kept the moral law of God. Believers will be judged as well, but our judgment will be in light of our Savior who saves us from our own sin and who took the wrath of God on himself in order that it would be turned away from those he saved. So the, God, the people of Israel were given this command to love in light of many proofs that God had given them of his power and grace. So they were to love him with all their heart and soul and might. Again, we want to first understand this in light of how Israel understood it when it was first given. To Hebrew, the heart in this context is not the physical organ. It's basically the mindset of the person. We might ask someone today, so what's on your mind? And it would mean about the same to an ancient Israelite if you were to say, what is on your heart? And indeed, some people today still use those interchangeably, right? But to love God with all your heart could roughly be translated for us today to be something like, love the Lord your God with all your thinking or all your thoughts. Or maybe we could say, everything we think should reflect our love for God. Now, some may take this instead to mean love God with all your affections. And really, there's no need to get into too much debate on this because the command leaves us no other impression than that every fiber of our being, whether thoughts or actions or opinions, whether affections, affections, all of it should be involved in loving God and loving him completely. You may have noticed the wording to be slightly different in Matthew when I read it a moment ago. He used with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And before we go ahead and say the Bible is inconsistent here, let us keep in mind a very big difference between Deuteronomy and the Gospel of Matthew, that Deuteronomy was originally written in the ancient Hebrew language. Matthew was originally written in the ancient Greek language. So today... Modern translators have the difficult job of taking those ancient texts and translating them into understandable English so that the broadest population among us can have a decent understanding of it. In the same way, when the gospel writers composed their work, they were putting it into Greek, the most common language in their area of the world at the time, with the broadest understanding. Uh, Actually, do you know there was more bilingual and multiple lingual language people then than there probably are today because they had to know the trading language and they had to know their local language. There was a lot of people like Paul who spoke multiple languages. But that was the job of the writer was to try to put it in a way that everyone could clearly understand the basic message of it. Not only that, but the gospel writers may have at times been less concerned with making their quotes from the Old Testament perfect translations in the Greek Instead, their main point was to get the point across accurately. So Luke in his gospel uses heart and soul and strength and mind. He actually adds one. Again, he's not contradicting the other accounts, but he's making clear the main point, which is that the love of God should be the driving force of everything we do, say, and think. Love of God should overpower any of our own selfish desires. It should overpower our appetites for worldly things. 
I should quickly say that soul is defined in some different ways, but generally means something like part of us that's not physical but spiritual, or that part of us that is our own will or personality. That's different ways people have read that. And might or strength may mean both our physical efforts and abilities as well as our driving force and passion. There's a lot of ways to look at it, but don't miss the main point. Everything is supposed to be involved in loving God. um, We can't ignore this command because it was given to the Jews, by the way. If Jesus said it was the greatest commandment, and it's recorded in the Gospels that he said so, then we can take this command as not only for Jews, but for everyone. Everyone will be judged by their obedience to the commands of God. And if this is the greatest one, then all the other commands fall within this command's broader implications. Again, it's about love or hate. Do you hate God? Then you'll hate all his commands. If you love God, you will love his commands, even when you are not keeping them perfectly, which none of us really do. For the believer in Christ, we're not slaves to sin, though. We're slaves to righteousness. In other words, our nature is not sin. Our nature now is righteousness. So when we do righteous things as believers, it's because that's our nature to do that. And when we sin as believers, it's not because that's our nature. It's actually opposed to our new nature in Christ. Sin for the believer is the exception, not the rule. So read Romans 6 if you want to see more about that and find out if it's true. But for the God-hater, when he sins, it's because it's his nature to do so. If the God-hater ever does something good, it's, only, it's not because his nature is good, but in fact, the good he do, does even convicts him because it shows he's aware of what is right and wrong. Paul wrote in Romans 2 that even those who didn't receive the law by nature do what the law requires, and this shows the work of the law is written on their hearts, and their conscience bears witness to this, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them on the day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying that since they do some good, it's proof that they know the difference between good and and bad, right and wrong. But how do we love God? How do we obey this command to love him with all our hearts and all our soul and all our might? Let's think for a moment of the people we love. What causes our love to increase for them? Well, it's been said absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I thought about that. I don't think that's universally true. Uh, Temporary separation between two people who love each other does indeed make them miss each other, pine for one another. But longer absence can actually have the opposite effect. I had some pretty close friends in high school But after many years of not seeing them in person and only seeing their stuff on Facebook, if I do see a post from them, it often makes me wonder, who who is that person? I don't even remember who they are. I graduated with a class of 495 seniors. And there have been times on Facebook, I get a request from a friend request, and the name or the photo, none of it even rings a bell. And sometimes I've had to message to another classmate and say, who is this? I have a friend request from her. And then I may be told, oh, remember, she played flute and band or something like that. Uh, I, I can honestly say that I don't love or have increased fondness for any schoolmates after many years of 
no contact with them. So I don't think absence makes the heart grow fonder. I could say the same with Marines I served with who were very close friends. I don't talk to them anymore. I don't even remember where they are. I don't think about them all that much, maybe a little bit. Or people at various jobs I've had, even close friends that we spent time with as a couple since we or they moved away, our bond decreases. We're less involved with them. So we know less about their lives. Our affections for them are not the same as they once were. I've read many long novels. And it's not uncommon when you see that you're getting to the last page of a really long novel. And you, you can sense because you're going through and you see there's only a few pages left. You know the conclusion is coming. You want to see what happens in the end. But yet you feel like when you close the book, you'll miss the characters. I would say for me, it's especially true with anything Dickens wrote. If you read David Copperfield, which has many elements of Dickens' own life, life in it, and perhaps a little more of his passion is found in those pages because he modeled part of the character after himself, that by the time you close that book, which is 700 to 900 pages, depending on how, which volume you get of it and how small the print is, but it's really long, when you get to the end, you really feel you have some love for those main characters. Well, maybe you're not a reader so much. Let's try this. How many times have you become a loyal fan of a television show, and there comes a time where the news comes out, the show is in its last season now? You feel a little sad inside. Everybody wants to watch the last episode because it'll be the last time they see these characters that they've learned to love. These characters even felt like family, maybe. Familiar people with their quirks and mannerisms, you quote them, you talk about them with others. So it turns out that the finales draw a huge audience. It is less so now, but there was a day when there was no streaming, kids. No TiVo, no DVR. And in those days when a show was ending, the audience would be huge. In fact, I looked this up, and I'm going to give you the, the top 20 show endings of all time, starting with 20. I'm going to go really quickly. And I'm going to bring it down to number one. Some of you folks probably have had a love for at least one of these shows. And you may remember that tender feeling you had when the show came to an end. Here are the top 20 finales by size of audience. Number 20, MacGyver. St. Elsewhere, Full House, Golden Girls, Happy Days, Gunsmoke, Star Trek, The Next Generation. Everybody loves Raymond, Dallas. I wasn't allowed to watch Dallas, but I always remember that song when I was a kid in the other room when I couldn't watch it. Frasier, Home Improvement, Family Ties, All in the Family, Cosby, let's not say that. Uh, the Last Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Magnum P.I., Friends, Seinfeld, Cheers, and finally the all-time number one watched episode of any TV series in history was the finale of M.A.S.H., over 100 million people watched the finale of MASH. Now, as I read this, if you're not old enough to know what MASH is, ask your father. As I read those, were there any warm feelings any of you felt thinking about the characters in those shows? Or maybe you're more like me and you have that feeling at the end of a long novel. But what is the common factor usually when you've been drawn into 
a care and concern for these fictional characters. Here it is. You spent a lot of time with them. Take MASH as an example. 11 seasons, over 250 episodes. In those days, if you missed the show, you were out of luck. Right? There were no DVRs, no streaming, like I said. So week after week, you had to make sure that you were near a TV at a particular time. And depending on what kind of TV you had, you probably had to make sure the antennas were adjusted, right? People ordered their lives around making sure they could watch the show. Then they talked about it with family and friends and coworkers. They grew to love the characters, even the annoying ones. 250 episodes plus reruns, so people had spent a lot of time with those characters. Or the 700-page novel, if you read something like that, for most of us, that represents many hours as well. You learned the background of the characters. You went through times of sorrow and triumph with them. In the end, you loved some of them. Why? You spent time with them. So how can you love God if you hardly spend any time with him? How can you love him with all your heart, soul, and might if you spend no time with him? Too many people in churches today think they'll be fine with an hour or so of exposure to the things of God each week. But if we are to love him and keep this command, we ought then to spend time with him. How else can we learn to enjoy him? So what do I mean by spending time with him? Isn't God present all the time with us? Well, yes, he is. But we can spend time with God in many ways. We can read his word. We can pray. We can worship through songs. We can listen to preaching. We can spend time with brothers and sisters in the faith, talking about our mutual faith and celebrating Christ together. This is how we love God. Our command is to love him, and the more we get to know him, the more natural this will be. And we may also reflect on his attributes. We can reflect on how he's blessed us. And we can remember that if we're in Christ, he's loved us despite knowing who we are. I've been going through the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I've read it some years ago and I'm rereading it. It's a stellar book. Packer reminds us of the love of God that is not based on our merits, but is despite our sinfulness. And here's a quote, and I think I have this one for the screen. This is J.I. Packer. He says, there is, a, there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow human, humans do not see, and I am glad, and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that, for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize that purpose. 
So how do we love God with everything we have? We need to get to know him better. Then we will appreciate him more. Time with him will increase our affection for him. Just as time with our favorite people does. Think about it. If time with fictional characters makes us love them, then certainly time with the living God will help us to grow in affection for him. And this is what our challenge as a church is going to be, to obey these commands. And really, they're all wrapped up together. The command to love is linked to the other commands. Our time with the Lord will increase our love for him. And let us not miss this. That not only has God given us his word and invites us to come to him in prayer, he has given us each other. The church is Christ's. We are given to one another to encourage each other, to testify to his grace, to challenge each other to go deeper, to celebrate together the victories of life, to weep together in the times of mourning. Spending time with God's people is another way to spend time with him. So let's do it together for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we look at the